bills and that we can sing and that we can pray and we can hear from your word and we can find out how much you love us. Help us to remember that this season as we get ready for Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, follow carefully. And they're off. All right. You want to get out your sermon outline, says the promise of his coming on it. We are starting a new series today, Christmas in Isaiah. As we'll be going through passages from the book of Isaiah uh, for Advent. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. Now the way to find Isaiah, for you, those who are not sure where it is, open your Bibles right in the middle. If you're in Psalms, go right. If you're in like Jeremiah or Daniel, go left. Some of you would have opened right to Isaiah. So we will be in Isaiah chapter 11. I'll give you a moment to turn there and find that. And for those of you who came in and didn't get one of our Advent devotionals, we have extras down here. I encourage you to come get one after uh, church. So we can go through those uh, this season together. All right. Listen to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you 
for making us your people. Thank you for your word. Thank you that this Advent, this Christmas season, this time of waiting, that your word points us to your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus. Focus us this day on your word and on your Son. Help us see Jesus in his holy and precious name. We pray, amen. Amen. Back during World War II, uh, Hitler's bombers rained destruction upon London uh, from the skies. The Battle of London was one of the great uh, battles of the war, and over 15,000 people lost their lives. Many parts of the city were reduced to rubble. You can go to many places in Europe uh, today, and you can see where parts of the city that are post-World War II which means that during World War II, they were destroyed and they were rebuilt. And that's in almost every major city in Europe. It's very rare to see uh, a city that doesn't have some new part. Uh, and London is no exception. And so parts of London just totally destroyed, reduced to rubble. And yet when the spring came, something amazing happened. Beautiful wildflowers many of them were thought to be extinct, sprang up in the midst of all this devastation. And botanists concluded that the seeds had lain dormant under buildings and structures uh, until the bomb blast had exposed them and gave them the opportunity to germinate. And I say that because Isaiah foresaw a day when Israel would be likewise devastated. And the lineage of the great King David would be decimated. And his mighty family tree would be chopped down to a stump. And yet God would be faithful. And out of that stump would come the one who would be the Savior of the world. And so it happened. The Apostle Paul declared in Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. At a time when civilization lay devastated by the effects of sin, when the rubble of broken lives would be scattered all over the countryside, a branch from a tree long thought dead would appear with the promise of new life. And so each week in Advent, we're going to be looking at a passage out of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is one of the major prophets uh, in the Old Testament. We call them major because their books are bigger, not because they're more important. And Isaiah would be the major, major, major prophet because he's got the biggest book. So we're going to uh, pull some uh, things out of uh, Isaiah. He often prophesied about the coming Messiah, this great messianic king who would be born into the world out of the line of Jesse, and out of the line of David. Now, there's a whole lot of prophecies. Uh, obviously, Advent doesn't last that long, so we're just going to pick six. Um, but because Christians believe that the Messianic king that Isaiah prophesied about was Jesus, we often read these passages at Christmas. And so we believe that Isaiah helps us to understand the depths and the riches and the richness of the meaning of Christmas. It helps us to understand who Jesus is. So the themes of Christmas in Isaiah, once we grasp them, will be, I believe, 
life-changing, refocusing us on who Jesus is. As I said, Isaiah is a big book, and Isaiah 1 through 12 forms the first major division of the book. And Isaiah 11 and 12 closes that uh, division of the book with a picture of the ideal king and the changes uh, that he'll bring with the Lord being praised in Zion. And there's this rapid movement in the book from the destruction of Assyria in chapter 10 to the establishment of the kingdom of God in Isaiah chapter 11. Although the two are connected theologically, it's God's initiative that affects both the destruction of Assyria and the establishment of the kingdom of God. And in the vision that he's called to a prophetic ministry, all the way back in Isaiah 6, Isaiah saw a seed springing from a stump, the remnant of Israel. There we read Isaiah 6.13. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, <coughs> whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. A terebinth was a large tree that had religious connections as a place where pagan gods were worshipped, which were often taken up as part of Israel's uh, religion. They often incorporated uh, stuff from the surrounding culture as part of their fall into idolatry. And very much what Isaiah would preach against. And here God's basically saying it's only good for firewood. Assyria is going to fall like a mighty forest before the axe of God. And yet there will be a shoot that springs up from the stump of Jesse, that is from the Davidic dynasty. And here the branch explicitly refers to the Messiah. Messiah simply means the anointed one, so only the ultimate Messiah can fill the slot that's described here. <coughs> Uniquely empowered by the Spirit of God, his rule will be impeccably righteous, will be the antithesis of the corruption of the nation which attracted God's judgment and which Isaiah preached against. He constantly preached against Israel. He brought many woes upon Israel because they had become corrupt. So perfect and absolute will be the Messiah's rule that death and destruction will die. So let's look a little bit closer at this. Go back to verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 11, and we see the promise of the coming king. The promise of the coming king. Of all the promises God made to the people of Israel, none is more important to them than the promise of a coming king, born of David's line who would rule with justice and in peace. This promise goes throughout the Old Testament. It's hinted at way back in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 3.15, the first glimpse of what history is moving towards uh, is seen there. God makes his first promise of a future salvation and victory over Satan by promising that an offspring of Eve would crush Satan's head. This future person is further defined with the giving of the covenant in Genesis 12 and 15. And then in a prophecy uttered by the patriarch Jacob shortly before he died, Genesis 49, we read, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. 
<coughs> so we see this coming king will come from the descendants of Abraham, the nation Israel, and specifically the tribe of Judah. Promises later confirmed by this strange character who shows up in the book of Numbers, a man called Balaam. He's hired to pronounce a curse on Israel. And instead, God's spirit comes and he can't do it. And God's spirit inspires Balaam to pronounce a blessing on the people of Israel, which really annoys the people who hired him. They keep saying, no, no, we hired you to pronounce a curse. He's like, I can't help it. I open my mouth, blessings come out. And that's what God's spirit does. And in Numbers 24, Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So we have all these pieces, sort of building blocks coming of this coming king. And then there's this sort of a quantum leap forward in our understanding of this king, uh, and this Messiah in 2 Samuel. Here, God makes these prophecies specific by relating them to one particular descendant of Jacob from the tribe of Judah, namely King David, the greatest king in Israel's history. And the context of the chapter is fascinating. In 2 Samuel 5, David's anointed king, uh, and as David dwells on who God is in 2 Samuel 7, he's struck with this startling reality. There we read 2 Samuel 7, 2. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And King David is shocked to think that God has been moving around in a tent, and he has this nice house. And I imagine since he's the king, it's more than a nice house. It's bigger than a McMansion. You know, the king didn't build a, you know, small place. I'm sure it's not a two-bedroom ranch. King has this gorgeous house made out of cedar. And God's got a tent. And all of a sudden, David is just struck. Something's not right. And so he says, I'm going to build God a temple. But David is wrong in what he thinks God would have him do. See, God never asked for a house of cedar. I'm sure God would have settled for something simpler, like obedience. But then something very strange happens. The king of the universe says to the king of the small nation in the ancient Near East that not only will David not build him a house, but God will build David a house. And that's astounding. The humility and grace of God is unmeasured. He takes a shepherd boy and makes him a king through which God is going to establish an eternal kingdom. And to David, God promises this never-ending line and perpetual rule. 2 Samuel 7, verses 9, 11, and 16. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house. And your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. 
David's name is to be great. Israel is going to have this place to dwell in peace. And when David dies, God will raise up an offspring and build a house for his name and establish an eternal kingdom. And the promise of an heir who would establish an eternal kingdom lives on through David's descendants. And with the reign of Solomon, you know everyone's hoping and thinking, perhaps this is the one, the offspring that will establish the eternal kingdom. But history tells us that's not to be. His kingdom fell, and God's promise to David never fell. But the zenith of Israel's glory under David and under his son Solomon fades pretty quickly, uh, according to the Old Testament. Within a generation, their kingdom split into two. David's descendants inhabiting Judah, the smaller, weaker part. And one by one, the vassal states among Israel's neighbors all broke free. And the mighty empire that David had conquered and Solomon had ruled has slowly dwindled away. Bit by bit, the temple storehouses that Solomon's treasure fleet had filled with gold were emptied out as one foreign power after another had to be bought off. And by the time of the prophet Isaiah, the northern kingdom of Israel has disappeared, swallowed up by the Assyrian Empire. And all that's left of Judah is the city of Jerusalem and a little bit of surrounding territory. Gone are all the vast armies, the great power, the great wealth that Solomon had accumulated. In fact, it's at this time that an invading enemy general taunted King Hezekiah of Judah by offering him 2,000 horses if he could find men to put on them. Gone is all the glory of Israel. And so all Israel's thinking, but what of the promises of God? Are they gone too? And just then, God speaks through his prophet Isaiah. And this is what he promises, Isaiah 11.1, 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. A shoot would come forth again from the stump of Jesse. That's the promise. It's a promise that when things look their bleakest, the house of David, son of Jesse, would once again be revived. God's guarantee that a new ruler would rise who would succeed David. And Jesus is called the son of David because one day he will fulfill the hope of a king like David. He is going to rule on God's throne forever, as it states in 2 Samuel. But over a thousand years pass before this promise begins to be fulfilled. And there's moments where this promise hangs by a thread. The time in 2 Kings 11, the wicked queen Athaliah, who's a Judean Jezebel, wanted her son to be king, but he was killed. So in rage, she wipes out the whole royal family. But unbeknownst to her, her sister takes her grandson, the infant boy Joash, and hides him away with his nurse in an upstairs bedroom in her home for six years. And then with the help of Jehoiada the priest, Joash is revealed and he takes the throne at the age of seven. So any seven-year-olds out there, you could be king. And then we read 2 Kings 11, 
And Jehoiada, who was the priest, made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people. God keeps the line of David alive until the proper time. And the proper time is what we call Christmas. It's a time when Jesus Christ, son of David, enters the world as the ultimate king, not just over Israel, but over all creation. And this mystery of how a descendant of David can establish an eternal throne is solved in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Through every generation, the line of David remains unbroken, preserved by God, and it's at this time of year that we rejoice that God is faithful. He's kept his promises to Eve, to Abraham, to Judah, to David. It's important in Advent season we remember the faithfulness of God to his promises. And when we think about this and we start to see those promises fulfilled in the Gospels, uh, it's worth remembering that real flesh and blood men wrote the Gospels, each one appointed by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and each had a particular audience in mind. The four Gospels tell the same story from different angles. The writers tailor their messages because each one speaking to a different uh, different readers, a different audience. And there's no question that Matthew quotes the Old Testament uh, more than any of the other three gospel writers. And Matthew's got Jewish audience, Jewish readers, and he's trying to tell them, this is the guy. This is the one you've hoped for. He fulfills all the prophecies that you've heard. The one that you've longed for and prayed for is here. And so son of David appears prominently in Matthew's gospel because the Israelites in general, especially during the first century after the birth of Christ, are hoping for a deliverer. They want someone who's going to liberate them from the oppression of Rome. But Matthew is saying, Jesus is the true deliverer that you're looking for. No, he doesn't overthrow Rome's armies. He does something far greater. He fulfills the hope for a righteous king. And he's righteous because the Spirit of the Lord rests upon him. And so we see verse 2, the Spirit of the coming King. Verse 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is uh, inseparable from the character of the Christ. Whenever God calls a person to a divine mission or a holy task, he endows that person with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Moses is given his spirit in Numbers 11. David is given his spirit in 1 Samuel 16. And from this endowment comes six characteristics that we have here in these verses. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. Roman Catholic Church adds, delight in the fear of the Lord, which would be the next verse, to make the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit and their tradition. So whether the number of gifts is six or seven, they stand as qualities that Isaiah found missing in the leaders of Judah, in the leaders of Jerusalem. And still fresh in their minds are all the woes that Isaiah pronounced against them. In Isaiah 5, he said, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. We also remember Isaiah warning the children of Judah against consulting with mediums and wizards rather than seeking the counsel of God. In Isaiah 8, 
when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Christ, however, will be guilty of neither of these sins. With the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him, he will keep his own counsel. And the gifts of the Spirit that Isaiah identifies represents the endowment for leadership that Christ will bring to his messianic role. In contrast with the leadership that Isaiah has blasted time and time and time again for personal unrighteousness and social injustice, Christ will come with wisdom. He'll be able to see things rightly and fully. He'll come with understanding, sensitivity to how things and people fit together and work together. He'll come with counsel, the willingness to listen and advise. He'll come with might the ability to influence by having the power to do what he says. He'll come with knowledge. He just knows the facts. He knows the truth. He knows what's really going on. And he'll come with the fear of the Lord, being totally focused on carrying out the will of God. Now, leadership theory has come full circle in recent days. When serious study of leadership began, effectiveness was identified with having a charismatic personality of the leader. But as it developed over time, personal characteristics of leadership got lost in a maze of situational theories that emphasized how the leader functioned rather than who the leader was. But now the deeper the studies go, the closer they come to the fact that the character of the leader makes all the difference. American politics actually reflects that change. Watergate was a turning point. Before Watergate, the character of candidates for presidential leadership never came into question. Today, however, character and trust are questions that take precedence over critical issues as economics and healthcare and education, even in our most recent election. Thousands of people are protesting the election of Donald Trump, primarily over character and trust issues, much more so than policy issues. And it seems that millions of people, many Democrats included, didn't vote for Hillary Clinton primarily over character and trust issues, even though they agreed with her policies. Isaiah draws the same conclusion centuries before. Leadership's not a haphazard role in any setting, in any situation. Special responsibility is given to the leader by God, and special accountability is required by the leader to God. And without the Spirit of the Lord resting upon the person who's called to lead, there's a danger of leaders becoming, as the leaders in Israel did, wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. So Christ becomes the example here for all to follow. He has the Spirit of the King. And because he has the Spirit of the King, we also see he has the wisdom of the coming King. The wisdom of the coming king. Picking up verse 2 and into verse 3. Verse 3 we read, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Since the Spirit of the Lord rests upon him, he's endowed, as we said, with wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And most of those pairs make sense if you look at them. But one's a little harder, counsel and might. The word counsel does mean wisdom, just like all the other words in the other pairs. But by combining counsel and might, it means not only does the coming king have the power to do what should be done, 
He knows exactly what should be done. He knows the best way to get it done, as well as having the ability to get it done. It also says, end of verse 3, he shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. That's actually another metaphor for wisdom. Well, I think of the worst choices in your life, some of the dumbest things you've ever done. Don't think too long. It's a long list probably for all of us. The older you are, the longer the list is. But, you know, when you've done foolish things, often it's because you went on appearances. You know, it looked good. They looked good. He looked good. She looked good. Everything seemed fine. And you didn't have the wisdom to penetrate down deep in order to see reality. But this one, we're told, has perfect wisdom. Now, the wisdom of God is one of the major themes at Christmas as well. When you take a look at all the Christmas passages, what's one of the big things, part of the Christmas story? The wise men. What's up with that? They come and bow down and offer gifts. It's a metaphor. It really did happen. But it was also a metaphor of this theme that the wisdom of the world pales before the wisdom of God. Especially in God's plan of salvation, the way in which God saves the world through Jesus, which began at Christmas, the wisdom of the world is seen to be foolishness. Because at Christmas in particular, but actually all of Christ's life, we see a violation of the world's wisdom. Everything Jesus does turns the wisdom of the world on its head. I mean, the world's paradigms for wisdom aren't always the same, but whatever the wisdom paradigm of the world is at the time, Christianity always looks dumb to the powerful and elite of the world. Let me give you an example. About 100 years ago, there was a huge division inside the Christian church and Christian institutions across North America and Europe. And it was sort of the age of Darwin and being enlightened and science and rationalism. And there's lots of stuff written about it, but sort of what people were saying is, you know, the world is showing us that everything can be explained by science. And if it can't be explained by science, it didn't happen. And all the smart people know that. Everything has a natural cause. Supernatural didn't happen, doesn't exist. And because the world has told us that, we need to change Christianity. You know, we've we got to update it. And one of the problems we have is, you know, this book is just filled with miracles all over the place. We need to get rid of those. You know, if we're going to survive, we have to find a way to extract just the ethics and the ethical principles. Everybody can accept that we should love each other, you know, work for social justice. All people are children of God, made in the image of God, and all those things are true. But we can't believe in this pre-existing deity. That Jesus was born of a virgin, a bodily resurrection, an infallible inspired Bible, that everybody needs to be converted through the power of the Holy Spirit, that has to go. And so there was this great division across our country. It hit virtually every Christian denomination across Europe, every uh, institution, college, university. And for the most part, they won. And the people who 
basically took over most of these institutions says we need to conform to the, what the world is saying. Because the world's saying, we're going to laugh at you. We're not going to respect you. Smart people are not going to come to your church unless you get rid of the supernatural. Miracles have to go. Not a lot of Christmas left when you get rid of miracles. So lots and lots of churches went in that direction, and they tried to extract the ethical principles and sort of leave aside the supernatural. Here's what's so fascinating. I noticed I was educated a long time ago um, because I'm old. Um, but when I went to school, there was a lot of people still arguing that's the trajectory for the church. It's all about ethics. Get rid of all that miracle supernatural stuff. But here's what we know. A hundred years after it began, the churches and institutions that embrace the wisdom of the world today are all in steep decline, almost without exception. And yet Christianity is growing like crazy across the world in places that nobody ever thought that it would. And we don't see that so much in our country because we often feel like we're under attack. But across Asia, Africa, South America, Christianity is booming because it's a supernatural religion. You know, in that hundred-year time frame, Africa went from about 5% Christian to 50% Christian. Africa is huge, millions and millions of people. Korea went from 0% Christian to about 40% Christian. And China is in the process of doing that right now. And this is changing the history of the world. It's changing the face of human history today. What kind of Christianity does that? A supernatural Christianity. Do you know why? Because when all those smart people said, you know, if we're going to embrace Christianity, we have to get rid of all the supernatural stuff and just, you know, live good lives and be ethical. It turned Christianity into some sort of self-improvement religion. You know, pull it together, suck it up, sola bootstrapsa. And the reality is that only works for people in prosperous, comfortable countries. And most of them aren't. It turned into an elitist thing. What about the poor of the earth? What are most people in the world? And the message of Christmas is that God has miraculously punched a hole in the barrier between heaven and earth. He's broken into our time and our space, and he's brought hope and mercy and power, and that changes lives. And it's changing lives all over the world. And it's hard for us to see, especially when you live in the Washington, D.C. area. Because Washington, D.C., if it's uh, not one of, or not the capital of the world, means there's no place on earth where Christianity looks more ridiculous than here. The world's always said that. Whatever the dominant city of the world was, we got laughed at. It started in Rome. It's been the message from the beginning. Over and over again, the world looks at Christianity and says, come on, get with the program. Smart people, cultured people, powerful people, respectable people, they are not going to accept you unless you get with the program and change with the times and get rid of this and this and this and this. The world has always laughed 
at Christianity. Yet in the end, God gets the last laugh. The world has always said, we're wise, you're foolish. But in the end, the wisdom of the world is shown to be foolishness. Of course, the world gets new paradigms all the time. And they always make Christianity look bad. But Christianity continues to grow century after century, millennium after millennium, because it's characterized by the wonderful foolishness of God, which we see in particular in crystal clear focus in the manger. There's glory in the manger. Nobody saw it. That's why the Apostle Paul teaches us, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's telling us that Christ is not just wise. Christ is not just wiser than us. Christ is the wisdom of God. And because he has the spirit of the coming king, because he has the wisdom of the coming king, we also see he has the delight of the coming king. Going back to verse 3 to the end of the chapter. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall, lie, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is no ordinary king. The spirit of the Lord would rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding of counsel and might, and unlike the world's most powerful people, a class of individuals not particularly distinguished for either godliness or virtue. This king, this shoot from Jesse's stump, would delight to fear the Lord. And righteousness and faithfulness would be his garments. And unlike most politicians who talk about helping the poor while leading millionaire lifestyles, the shoot of Jesse would bless the poor with justice. And the result is unimaginable. Enemies reconciled. Injuries healed, dangers removed, the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And the Hebrew word that most fully describes this promised state of peace is shalom. Where is this promised shalom? Where's the fulfillment 
of Isaiah's vision of God's promise. In case you haven't noticed, wolves do not yet dwell with lambs in our world. They eat them. Does that mean God's promises have failed? That his king isn't coming? No, it means we should look for that day all the more. The truth is, despite all the political promises, despite all the government programs, despite all the sincere efforts of all the decent, well-intentioned people everywhere, the human race is never going to achieve peace by itself through its own unaided efforts. It's beyond the capacity of human nature to make the world a place of universal blessing. Only the rightful king can establish righteousness and justice in the earth and only when he personally returns. But the good news is he will return. We don't know when, but we do know who. And his name is Jesus. He came once to atone for sin and to reconcile people to God and each other, and he will come again to complete the salvation of the whole world. Christ's reign and the new creation will usher in the kingdom of God in all its fullness, and then shalom will come and fill the world. Those are famous verses in verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. This whole section is using poetry to say that this king is not just going to make the world a little bit better place. He's going to get rid of death. He's going to get rid of disease. He's going to get rid of violence. He's going to get rid of suffering. He's going to make everything right. What does that mean? I think Christmas actually sheds some light on this. I said that Christmas is about a miracle, and there's a miracle even in this text. It shows you why Christianity's faith always refutes the wisdom of the world. Look at it. Who is this king? What's the identity of this king? In verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's a botanical metaphor. A shoot that comes out of a stump or a branch uh, comes out of a tree means that you descended from someone. You came out of someone else. It's saying the messianic king will come out of Jesse, who is the father of David. It's a way of saying this will be a physical descendant of David and Jesse. However, if you jump down to verse 10, for many years I've read this without even noticing this implication. I've preached on this passage twice before and never noticed this before. It doesn't just say that the Messianic king is the shoot of Jesse, but that he's the root of Jesse. It says, verse 10, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Your root is what you've grown out of. What it's saying is that Jesse came from him and David came from him. Now how can someone be both the shoot and the root of David and Jesse? How could someone be a descendant of David and Jesse and at the same time be the source of David and Jesse? There's only one answer, as crazy as it seems, especially in the eyes of the world, is that the Creator God, who is the root of all of us, who is the source of all of us, was born into the world as a weak human being. And he came as a descendant of David. He's the God-man Jesus Christ. That's the miracle of Christmas. But it's also an explanation of why Christmas is so paradigm-shifting for the world. 
how it changes how we see things. Now the wisdom of God uproots the wisdom of man. Perhaps some of you have been to France, been to the Chartres Cathedral, a beautiful building, looked it up online, you can see pictures, it's gorgeous. Justly celebrated for magnificent medieval stained glass windows. And one of the most striking is a window called the Jesse Tree. And this window is set in the cathedral's western wall, and when the afternoon sun shines through it, there's this ethereal, like heavenly uh, blue of the glass, and it's dazzling. But even more arresting is the story that the window tells in picture form. The Jesse tree is a rectangle that rises vertically. It's very tall. And at the bottom, there's old Jesse lying asleep. But from his side, a tree springs up. Branches seeming to push upward through each succeeding generation. The lower limbs boast of kings and conquerors. But at the top of the tree, ruling in glory, seated upon the throne, is the Lord Jesus. And the Jesse tree window tells us in pictures the promises that Isaiah 11 gives us in words, all of which grow to fulfillment in Jesus. And so meanwhile, we watch and we wait. And during Advent, we prepare for his coming by witnessing to him, by witnessing to his work in our lives and in our church, and by working towards the ultimate shalom that he will bring. And during this season, we are to think about him because he's the king. And Advent is the promise of his coming. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close.